Welcome to State of the Arts in Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural Institute. Our guest today is Tabitha Tripp, a Southern Illinois artist. Tabitha and I discuss her artistic background, her journey as an artist, and her most recent series that will be displayed here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center through September and October. And watch your back. When you cross the line, just look both ways. Tabitha, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So you are from the Southern Illinois region. Where are you about where about are you from in Southern Illinois? I live outside of Anna. How, how long have you been there? I have lived in Anna nearly my entire life. So growing up in Anna, what led you to become an artist? You want the cheesy story? As, as real as it can get. <laughs> I always wanted to be an artist. My grandmother was very supportive of growing up to be whatever we wanted to be. Um, which is kind of strange considering she's very German in her heritage, but she, um, she said, you can grow up to be an artist if you want to be that. And so she supported it. She always had crepas. She always had tracing paper. She always had art supplies for me to play with when I went over. And so I decided now that I'm 50 this year that I should actually like make good on that. So you knew from a very young age. Do you remember the moment or general time period when you realized that that's exactly what you wanted to do? I think the like real turning point for me was like, yeah, I was doing a lot of um, independent classes after school at night. There was a drawing and painting class that I went to that my parents helped support. Um, but the turning point for me was when I got a scholarship to go to Savannah College of Art and Design. That sounds like a big turning point. It was. It was huge because I was like, where where does this school come from? And it was a private school and they had seen a pointillism black and white pen and ink drawing that I did. And that's what won me the scholarship. Now, it wasn't a huge scholarship by any means, but um, it did tell me that, hey, people are looking at me and they think I'm good enough to go to this private school. Uh, it only lasted a year <laughs> because uh, we couldn't afford it. And so I came back here to Southern Illinois to finish off at Johnny Logan and uh, Carbondale. Savannah College of Art and Design is an incredibly prestigious art school. And it's it's such an honor just to be able to attend there. Um, how did they find that piece that, that let them to where they recognized you? I believe there was a competition um, the, the teacher sent our artwork off to, um, and they were picking from people um, from that competition. I think it was maybe at Springfield, but I don't recall the details. So your, your art teacher in high school mm-hmm. is the one that submitted? Yep. So you were pretty serious about art in high school as well. Oh, yeah. So this all started whenever you were young. And your grandmother saw that you had a love for art and mm-hmm. started to support you. Um, and then you pursued that once you were in in junior high and high school and you were able to focus more on certain classes. You were able to focus more on your art then. Yeah. So what would you say you gained the most from Savannah College of Art and Design? Oh, their core classes were phenomenal. 
they uh, their 2D and 3D programs um, really hammered in like the the principles of art, like you know your 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 concepts, and then uh, color theory. I I struggled um, through these classes. These 2D, 3D, and color theory were so difficult. The teachers' expectations were so high. Um, but when I came back here and started taking classes at John A. and SIU, I was like, holy cow, I learned everything that I need to know to get through the next six years. Um, I took the long track. But um, their expectations of their students, um, I think, just pushed us up to that next level where I don't think I would have got that here locally. It's it's amazing when... An, uh when people have high expectations, how as humans, we rise to what's expected. It is. Yes. And, and being able to experience that through Savannah college of art and design, and then uh, coming back to Johnny Logan and SIU and applying what you had already been through and the expectations that were there for you with them, mm-hmm. did that set you up to, to kind of be ahead of the curve with within your classes and within your peers once you were in, in that place? That's a really good question. Um, I think what I lacked was being humble. You know, coming, coming back home, I think I was a little bit bitter, um, not being able to finish off at SCAD. But um, I do think it changed uh, the way that I looked at my classes, in particular the painting classes and um, the drawing classes. I don't, I, I think the thing that was frustrating mostly for me is like in high school, I was just a, you know, average student, C's and B's. At Savannah College, I was straight A's. I, I excelled and I was on the honor program. And then when I came back to SIU, I felt like I still struggled because the class sizes were bigger. The um, the core curriculum that you had to take, the general ed classes, kind of brought my GPA down. So I think that was difficult. But I also feel like, um, like I said, those core classes, 2D, 3D, and color theory, really, really hammered in the, like, the groundwork that I needed um, to kind of get me actually to where I am here. So you mentioned that... Uh that it, you came into your painting classes with a different outlook whenever you came back to Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. What what was that different outlook that you came into those classes with? I was frustrated that I had to move back here. Yeah. It was frustrating because um, I, I also tried to switch my major. I went from being, Savannah College was mostly two-dimensional. Um, when I came back to SIU, I wanted to explore pottery um, my dad was really big into ceramics. Um, I thought I wanted to be a ceramicist. And then um, that didn't work out. Um, I'm not going to go into details about that. But I switched my major to zoology. And then I realized how much I really liked two-dimensional work. So uh, Michael Onkin took me back into a BFA program. Um, and I finished with a fine arts degree in painting. That's an interesting track. I, I'm really big into zoological, biological sciences. Um, so, and that kind of fits in like to my family's upbringing. My dad was really big into the sciences as well, but also had a nick for artistic ability. 
So it sounds like you had a lot of a lot of support from every aspect of your family um, coming up into the arts and and in a having a father that was into ceramics. Um, there, it sounds like there was a real atmosphere of respect for the arts throughout your upbringing. Definitely was, yeah. Um, my dad designed and built their home, our home that I grew up in. Um, there was a lots of artistic expression in that. Um, I think that one of the things he probably, he, he's passed, um, he was always frustrated with his paintings too. So he would have much rather been woodworking or sculpting or pottery. But um, they were. They, my parents, and my mom is still terribly supportive. She's my biggest collector. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so it's amazing. You know, there's a, there's a stereotype around small town and rural. Uh, the idea of the focus in those communities is so much towards athletics and, and business that, but I, I don't find that to be true. Really. I find that to be a, a false stereotype that, um, well, it might not be a big broad general support in every community for the arts. It really is up to individual household and, and core groups that you find yourself within as to where you find that support and that support, fosters an artistic mindset coming forward, moving forward. So you came out of SIU, mm-hmm. um, having studied pottery or ceramics, zoology, and then, um, painting mm-hmm. eventually. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the zoology part of it. Does do you feel like that ever had any influence on your artwork down the road? What you, the time that you spent as a zoology student? That's a good question. I don't think it did. Okay. I, I think it was really, um, I think it was the way that I just looked at the world. I think maybe the art had more impact on the zoology. Interesting. So, there's a lot to there's a lot to being an artist. There's a lot to finding your own voice as an artist. Um, at at any point did you did you find yourself in a position where you felt like you'd really finally found your voice and your focus as an artist? Oh, I think that's an ever evolving thing for artists. I think that there's always the next art series or the next art piece that you find more of your voice. I think it's a constant uncovering of one's voice. So you think the voice is more of a representation of yourself at the time of the work? Definitely. Rather than a general overarching broad statement of self. I feel like I'm relatively uh, young and immature as an artist. Um, that I won't be able to answer that question until like, you know, maybe 25 years from now. Okay. So get back to me. You, you mentioned that, um, that you're just now fulfilling that role of pursuing arts full time. Mm -hmm. What was the, what was the time from graduating with a degree in painting (laughs) till now? Well, there was, uh, two marriages, 
Um, there were children. There was building a house. Uh, there was environmental activism and advocacy. And um, then the death of my father. And that is what propelled me into saying that life is too short. And it's shorter than we think. So I need to really focus on the thing that I always wanted to be when I grew up. And that is an artist. And so that was a, that was 25 years, essentially, to find yourself as an artist once again. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you then just jump back in to being an artist at that point or jump back into the art form itself? Uh, well, I never completely dropped it. There was always, when I built our house with my husband and my father, uh, there was always the designated studio space. There was always that room that was designed into the house. That was where it was going to be. That was what was going to happen. Um, so there was always art in my life. Um, and I think that that kind of took the place over the 25 years that I was able to have time that I would find to make a little bit of art here and there. I've done a couple exhibits over that 25 years, solo shows um, at Cristado's. Um, there was a couple other places I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I didn't let it fall completely out of reach. Um, I thought if that happened, that would be the death of it, and I didn't want that part of me to die. That would not be good. So um, I just slowly kept little pieces going here and there. So it was always present. It's it just always. wasn't. A, a primary focus of your life. It wasn't front burner. Okay. And so after your father's passing, it became front burner because you were ready to jump in and dive and just pursue it as your passion at that point. Yep. Was there anything that shifted for you from an artistic standpoint whenever you finally made that leap? I think the things that shifted most for me in the last three years have been um, from realistic landscapes to uh, more abstract concepts. So I've, I've, I've been doing landscapes and flowers uh, most of my life. And so I was ready to like make a change and say, well, you know what? I, I, I've seen the world. I've seen a lot of the world, not all of the world, but I want to start exploring like what it is that my internal self starts to see from the things I have uh, taken in and experienced through of the the things that have happened in my life. So it's pretty straightforward whenever you approach uh, a landscape or a floral piece that this is what you're painting and that's what's going on to the canvas. Mm -hmm. But whenever you're approaching an abstract, how do you even start? I just start playing. I, to be quite honest, most of us is just me exploring uh, like every day, like there's a different feeling, there's a different um, mood that's happening internally. And I think over the last um, definitely 18 months, I've had to figure out ways like to like, okay, the consistency in the feeling that's happening. Um, and so like getting to the studio every day, creating the schedule of working in the studio every day, not getting sidetracked by, you know, something that's happening in the house or whatever, you know, the garden needs to be picked. Like, you know, just getting in the studio every day and creating how I'm feeling. And um, it kind of started from 
a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of angst about uh, the environmental aspects that were happening in the world, in particular climate change, that we seem to be going over that climate cliff of catastrophe and weather is becoming increasingly chaotic. And it's like, I was very frustrated. And so a lot of my paintings about 18 months ago, you could see the frustration. And so now I'm trying to, to like step back a little bit and find some solace, find some soothing, find, um, you know, expression with texture rather than these fairly angry brushstrokes. Um, so it's just been um, me exploring um, emotion without like being in your face about what the emotion is. So it's 100% an emotional process for you whenever you're approaching a, an abstract. I would say majority emotional um, and experimentation. Like, what does this texture do? What does this color do over top of that texture? What does this transparent glaze do? What is that? You know, how do the layers work? And how do you create um, an interesting composition uh, not using landscape or flowers? Because I love flowers. I love Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, and I, I really enjoy the um, Catskill River Painters. Um, it, it's just, they're, what, what do you... Like, how do you create interesting artwork that isn't something that people can relate to in a world that's quickly disappearing? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned George O'Keefe. In your abstract paintings, where do you feel like your, uh, what other artists do you feel like your style comes from? Is there anything that is present in your current work that you can connect to the influence of another artistic artist or their style. I can't. I, most of the artists I've been following um, were from the Cold Wax Academy, Jerry McLaughlin or Rebecca Krall. Um, probably never heard of them. They do cold wax. Um, and that's what I've really been getting into is cold wax and oil. Um, and I went down to Mexico in March and I attended a workshop um, that number one in San Miguel, Mexico. It was just amazing, beautiful landscape. But now I can see the influence on the San Miguel landscape and their artwork. And I was like, oh, now I get it. It's not completely abstract to me anymore. It's not just shapes and colors. And so um, I've been trying to um, like study how those abstract paintings work and what works for me, what I'm, I find visually intriguing and inviting in each, each of those pieces. Um, and then there's a couple other in, Instagram artists that I've been following that um, like, I'm just enamored with, like what, what they're doing with the, the texture and the line and the shapes. So I, I think we're like over inundated with like artists these days. Like, and so there's not any one particular one that I can uh, holler about except the cold wax I can't. So I like that you're, I like what you said about being inundated with artists because literally everything that we experience these days, there's been an artist's touch in it. Um, you know, people look at social media or they look at the news, they look at any of the, any one of these things and every aspect of any of those things has been crafted by an artist at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the interface itself and the curvature of 
of the frames that you're typing within were created by a graphic artist at, at one point. If you're watching the news, the set uh, was created by an artist. The the slides that are coming up on the screen were created by a graphic artist. Um, and so everything that we interact, especially with our phones and everything that's so present, we're constantly encountering imagery that was created by someone. Mm-hmm. And so we are surrounded by art more now than we ever have been. Yep. Within that, how do you find your place as an artist? Oh, it is hard. I, I was just listening to an artist podcast on the way up about confidence as an artist. And I think sometimes if I let that stuff get to me too much, I'm like, oh, I'm not, this, this is crap. This is crap. This, you know, and pretty soon I've got a stack of, you know, things I don't appreciate. So I have to like step back and, and not overindulge, but also like, why is it? Ask myself very, very critical question. What is it about that piece that I do like? What is it about this piece that's really off-putting to me? Like there's some stuff out there that's really bad. And it's like, well, why is it bad? Why do I not like it? But why does this person think it's so great that they're selling it for $500? You know, I, and like try to figure out what it is that's triggering me or, you know, off-putting so that I still stay in a place of learning from what I am seeing. And that's a that's another great point is that just because we're inundated with art doesn't mean we're inundated with good art. Um, it could be really bad. And that all of that is all so subjective, top to bottom. Terribly. Um, yeah. To where what one person encounters and views as good art, others don't have appreciation for. And and it really all falls down to your own, your own personal taste within art. Um, now, granted, there are fundamentals and basics of line and color theory and composition. Um, but even within that, those fundamentals don't necessarily translate to public appreciation. No. Um, and whether something is technically sound and good by all of the fundamental metrics, um, the public response to it can be completely different whether those things are present or not. Yeah. I'm just wrapping my mind around. Um, there are so many things within the art world that it's the way that it affects others emotions or mental state. So, you know, as you're creating your art, it's your emotions. It's your psyche being put out there. Mm hmm. Um, but then what you have put out there and what people take from it are two completely different things. And once it, once it leaves your studio or your mind or, um, you know, goes from your screen out to the internet, however it's distributed, your emotional curation of that piece no longer is yours. And it goes out and it's whatever the the curation of emotion that happens from that piece to the people taking in the art mm-hmm. um, to what they receive. Right. Do you ever get frustrated by that? That yes. 
that what you see it from and, and where it comes from for you is con- taken completely different directions from that point forward. I hung a show down at the Anna Art Center and I had all of my abstract and then I actually had two pieces from previous, like before I went to Mexico and everything else was after Mexico. And one woman's like, she's like, this is the only one I like. And she points to the landscape, a very small landscape. Um, in, in my opinion, it wasn't great. It was okay. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't put it up, right? But I was really surprised at how judgmental. She, she didn't even want to look at the abstract. She didn't want to even like read the statement that went with um, the MMIP project I did. And I was just like, wow. She just completely shut down at the landscape. And for me, it was like, you don't want to see like, the, the landscape for me is are, are superficial. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're very um, consumer driven. Like I make landscapes because uh, I, people do like them um, and they're more they're better received, but I want to express a deeper issue. I want to express something that's happening to uh, an indigenous friend and I want I want you to understand it from my point of view or I want you to at least consider what it's like from my point of view to hear these stories. And she didn't want to even like entertain that. And so it was frustrating for me. Like I just was like, oh, forget it. It's not worth my time. But um, even my other abstract pieces, like this is how I'm, I'm perceiving the world right now. This is how I'm perceiving our environment. And like maybe stop to consider it with me. I think one of the things that I do miss most about um, school or workshops or whatever, um, where there's other artists, is the critique. I value the critique of, of artistic minds in a way that we can break down the abstract or the realist paintings and like to actually help each other to create better artwork. You mentioned the, the landscape versus the abstracts. And it, it came across that the, uh, that the abstracts are so much more pure expression than the landscapes. And so I, 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 it's hard not to take it personally when anyone critiques your work. Yeah. Um, especially when your work is your experience and your voice. Um, so let's talk about this series. All right. And, and you mentioned your indigenous friend, and that this series is is an expression of that in, in some way. Talk us through this series and, and, and what that standpoint is. So I have a friend that's struggling with cancer up in uh, Winnipeg. And uh, they are indigenous. And um, some of their experiences are mind-blowing and harrowing. Uh, they live through... Um, the boarding school issues. I don't know if you know about um, the colonizing of indigenous youth. Uh, basically, the Canadian government uh, and some U.S. government uh, agencies removed children from indigenous households in order to make them better citizens of America and Canada and de-Indian them. They like, uh, basically take their culture away from them so that they would no longer remember their indigenous culture and heritage, language, hair, um, 
religious uh, ceremonies, traditional medicines, all of that stuff was basically uh, whitewashed from their memory. I know they took children so young that they couldn't remember who their families were. Well, my friend was part of that experience. Um, she, they were um, sexually assaulted in the boarding school. Uh, she, they had trouble. I, I say she and they um, because this person is a two-spirit. In, in indigenous culture, two-spirit means somebody that doesn't identify with male or female. They identify with both, uh, and that's a sacred spirit in the indigenous community. And so um, Cedar um, lived through that experience, um, but lost touch with their original family and had to seek out their brother and their family members after the fact, um, but is now struggling with cancer. And um, the... This person, uh, Cedar, has also uh, lost several of their their friends and, and family members to uh, people being taken away, at, not only to the boarding school, but also in human trafficking, um, which is when you live near extraction communities, um, and Cedar lives near the tar sands up in uh, Canada, uh, people are stolen. Indigenous people are stolen at a much higher rate than white people and they go missing so it's the missing and murdered indigenous peoples project and uh, proceeds from the pieces that sell uh, will go back to support cedar uh, in their cancer it's a pretty deep conversation um, the the abstract pieces that i've been working on um, started with a large piece for the uh, Women's Voices exhibit in Carbondale uh, that Teresa has fixed put together. And I started with a very large piece with um, a cold wax painting on canvas and some cutout canvas dresses applied to the canvas and then shears put over that with uh, a matriarch dressed in a Northwestern, um, a Canadian Northwestern tribal um, shawl. And... Um, that one has led to another 13 now paintings. The red in each one of the paintings symbolizes a missing and murdered indigenous person that has gone missing. And when, you, when, a, when a community loses a loved one to um, being stolen um, and they don't know what happened to the person, they usually hang a red dress outside. And so you would see these red dresses um, in this, uh, sorry, I'm, it's, this is a really intense conversation. So, um, just, so in this, um, what had happened? I'll just back up a little bit. What had happened was that there was a pipeline that was going through an indigenous community up in Canada. And the indigenous community stopped and they put a blockade, basically a lot like Standing Rock, except they had already built a lodge. They had built a sweat lodge. They had built um, houses. They had built um, medicine rooms. And they had started to build a community to hope to stop this pipeline. And the images that came from that pipeline fight were really, really strong for me. Like they've stuck with me. 
And it's the matriarch that's standing there in her Northwestern uh, shawl um, and the red dresses in the snow. And those red dresses just like hanging there, like just like you could tell they were somebody's loved one and they're just missing their physical form. And for me that that was, that was so moving and I, I wasn't there, but it's, it's impacted me. And the stories that Cedar would tell me about another sister went missing, another two spirit person went missing, another two spirit sister, you know, and like Cedar was constantly letting me know another person went missing and nobody gave about it. And this was all from one community. This was all from one person's network. Like, how can you lose that many indigenous people? How many people have to go missing before we have to like, you know, why, why isn't important enough that they're not being found? I remember two years ago, there was a, a white woman who went uh, across the country with her boyfriend and the news was all about it when she went missing. But we don't talk about the thousands of missing and murdered indigenous people that have gone missing, let alone the children that are buried under all those boarding schools I talked about earlier that are still being uncovered. And so this is this series is a, a way for you to start to put a voice to that in your way. Yeah. And a lot of these abstracts are your emotional response to that. Yes. Um, so we can see the red represented, which represents those red dresses, which is each a different person missing from that indigenous community. What else, um, can we see in this series of paintings that is representative that we can connect to like that? That's it. I don't know what else you'll see in them. I think that one of the other things I really have um, enjoyed is the layers, like so many layers. Um, I have started to use line work in some of the paintings, and I think for me the the thing, I feel like there's always a line connecting me to you. There's always those degrees of separation, but I don't feel like there's so many degrees of separation anymore. There's literally... A heartstring here to you, right? And there's a heartstring to Cedar, and there's a heartstring to another missing person. And so, like, I think the thing that is intriguing to me is the layers and the strings. So the the linear nature of aspects of these paintings is a way that you are directly connected to the people viewing it and to the people that are represented within these paintings and the void that is created when these people have been taken from the communities that's represented in these paintings. Yeah. Thank you for sharing their stories. Um, and thank you for being transparent with your emotions with us. Um, and, and sharing that because the, these are stories that need to be told. Um, and there needs to be a representation of these. Um, and so we appreciate you voicing that with us today. Um, I really look forward to the series hanging here in the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. It's going to dis be displayed here for the next two months. Mm -hmm. um, 
and some of this will be explained um, in text that that accompanies the artwork as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we welcome anyone listening to come to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center and see these. Um, is there representation of these images online anywhere that people could experience, see them um, if they're not able to make it here? I've started to put them up on my website, which is tabithatrip.art. Okay. That's two piece. All right. And so we'll put that uh, link in the description um, of the videos as well as the description of the ep- the episode on the podcasts so that people can find that as well. That'd be great. Thank you for spending some time with us today, Tabitha. It's oh. been a pleasure speaking with you and we appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center featuring local artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and arts events in Southern Illinois, as well as touring artists coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Special thanks to Tabitha Tripp for her time speaking with us today. And a special thank you to Wingtips for providing this episode's soundtrack. Join us every Thursday morning for a new episode on Facebook, YouTube, or whatever audio podcast service you prefer. And now for Cross the Line by Wingtips in its entirety. You came in close, but I stood guard.